Well, it comes to find out that McFarland was booked on American Airlines Flight 11 from Boston to L.A. But he arrived to the airport too late and missed his flight. And we all know, you know, it's an epic now in the history of the United States that that flight slams into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Uh, Obviously, no survivors. Um, So McFarland... uh, If he would have been on that flight, he would have been dead at the age of 29. But he's not. Uh, He's actually alive. And he is now still breathing. And he's still able to love. And he's still able to build relationships. He's still able to be creative. He's still able to work. I mean, he's still able to feel the, the sunshine on his face. So, of course, McFarlane would ask this question. She would say, All right, after that narrow escape, do you think of the rest of your life as a gift? No, McFarland says. Quote, that experience didn't change me at all. It made no difference in the way I live my life. It made no difference in the way I look at things. It was just a big coincidence. What's wrong with that? You know what's wrong with that? McFarlane is disconnected from 9-11. 9-11 means nothing to him personally when he has every reason for it to be deeply personal. 9-11 doesn't generate a gratitude in his life. I'm alive. I'm actually free to live another day, and there were many people that weren't, all because I was late. And I wonder if we backtracked all the, the things that had to happen for him to be late. Maybe his alarm didn't go off. Maybe there was traffic on a place that normally what? 9-11 didn't grip him. 9-11 never penetrated him. The events that led to his escape haven't reached him and changed him and exercised some sort of control or released some sort of fresh new focus or power in his life. You know what our passage would say today? You know how we would interpret that? It would say, Seth MacFarlane forgot 9-11. So we're going to have to figure out what does that mean to forget something? What does it mean to forget? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. This is a reading from Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishtham, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishtham eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishtham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishtham. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We ask that now you would fill us with your spirit, that you would uh, help us 
to hear and help us to see and actually um, raise us uh, from the dead in a major many way. All because Jesus, you've been risen from the dead. And we ask this all in your name, amen. All right, so we need a quick review. What have we covered so far in Judges? You know what we've done? We've looked at a double introduction. So the very first time we got together about Judges, we looked at the historical account, and that was Judges 1, 1 through 2, 5, those of you who are interested in that kind of detail. The focus at that time was the historical events of the book, and what were the historical events of the book? We've got 90% of the promised land won, 10% of it left to be won. And now the historical events that we look at in the very beginning are, how does that generation deal with the 10% needing to be won? What did those events look like? So there's a written record of what happened with that 10% of that generation as they went in to engage that promised land. We have the account. The second introduction focused on the interpretation or the message of those historical events. There's a tremendous lesson here for reading the Bible. So first you get the historical events, and then right at the tail end of it, you get a message over the historical events, or you get an interpretation. Because God knows we need one. You can go look at throughout the Bible and look at Jesus and his interaction in the Gospels, and you'll see that Jesus performs many kinds of historical events. And then you'll see the crowd, and you'll see the disciples, and you'll see the Gentiles, and you'll see the religious leaders all coming up, all seeing these same historical events, and all of them going, oh, this is what it means. And the crowd says, oh, he's a food provider. And then you find Jesus pulling his disciples aside and saying, this is what it means. The Bible is history in action. And then God's saying, if I leave it up to you, you're going to misinterpret it. You're going to miss the message. Here's the message. Here's what it means. So that was what we looked at the second time. First, the historical events, then the message of the historical events. So what are we doing now? Now. (laughs) Now we look at the first savior judge or war hero or medal of honor winner in Israel. The first avenger. Scholars call it a paradigm of salvation. In other words, this is the ideal savior judge. This is the ideal deliverance, the ideal peace. And this is all you get. And it's as good as it's going to get. Because after this guy, the wheels fall off. After this guy, the judges aren't as ideal. The deliverances are powerful, but they have less potency. And with each one, we get six major ones that are focused on. There are a lot more recorded in the book. But with each major highlighted judge and deliverance, it gets less and less glorious, right, to the end of the book. So the book actually has a purpose. Even in its literary structure, it wants to take you somewhere, okay? So who's this ideal savior judge? Do you know who he is? Some guy named Othniel. Hmm. What's so fascinating about this ideal cycle, though? Do you notice? I mean, this is supposed to be the ideal cycle. So what do you expect in an ideal cycle? I mean, it lacks colorful commentary. Do you see that? I mean, it's almost like it's sterile. I mean, should we say even like clinical? It's almost like it lacks such color that it's almost like the passage is saying, 
don't touch. No trespassing. And that's so odd. Because when we go to Ehu, the next guy that we're going to see next week, you're going to be like, ooh, can we turn down the color? That's a little too much high def. Have you noticed that? I got one of those high def TVs we got a couple of years ago, and then you got one that you got like when they first came out. And the one that first came out, I like it because I still feel like it's, when you watch a movie, you're still in an imaginary world. Now I watch a movie on this new high def deal, and I'm like, I can see that dude sweat. I don't like that. It looks real. Ah, I don't like it. Let's go back to pretend in the movies where I can enter into a, a world. Well, when we go, when the world deals with the ideal, when we want to portray the ideal, what do we do today? Man, it's not colorist. It's over the top, right? Over big characters and incredible scenery and outrageous storylines and plots. You know, it's stuff like princesses with perfect hair even when they wake up. And princes who have no warts and no flaws. Only the frogs do. But even in those stories, the frogs turn into princes, right? You know, you got Avengers, fiction, over-the-top heroes, outlandish stuff. But in this ideal world, in the ideal world of the judges, there's no dialogue, there's no detail, there's no reported speech, there's no dramatic events, there's no scenic description, there's just the facts, and the facts are very, very limited. Don't touch. No trespassing. Or... Is something else going on? What's the goal behind the colorless commentary? What's it trying to do to you and me? You know what it's trying to do? It's not saying don't touch. It's saying pay attention. Come here, come here. Pay attention to what I'm trying to say in the very, very, very first judge. Everything is loaded and hangs on verse 7. Verse 7 is the key that unlocks your heart. It's the key that unlocks all your relationships. It's the key that unlocks your world. It's the key that unlocks reality. Pay attention. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. I want you to notice how God defines evil. I mean, if I'm defining evil, I'm picking something really nasty. You know, cultural sins and just even nasty people like Hitler. Serial killers. God says, you want to know what's evil? Forgetting me. So what is forgetting God like? What is that? How do you forget God? I mean, what kind of forgetting God is this? Is this the kind of forgetting God like, oh, I forgot my quiet time this morning. Sorry, God. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't pray. I didn't go to church. Or, I'm sorry, God, I, I forgot where the book of Leviticus was in the Bible. And for the life of me, I can't remember the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. 
I mean, is this the kind of forgetting that's being talked about here? If it's not that, what else could it be? Is it the kind of forgetting like they all became atheists? The whole nation of Israel became Buddhists. You know, we just decided as a nation, you know what, God? We just don't believe that you exist. I mean, what have you done for us lately? We've decided as a nation to form our own club and we're going to be different than everybody else on campus. We don't believe in your existence anymore. Is it that kind of forgetfulness? Or is it the kind of forgetfulness that goes like this? It's our parents' fault. Our parents never taught us about God. They were the old gung-ho, first generation to get into the promised land, but boy, they never took us to church. And they didn't discipline us. They were too, way too easy on us kids. This generation, gosh, they just do whatever they want to do. No one catechized us. No one took us and prayed for us. Is it that kind of forgetfulness? What kind of forgetfulness are we talking about here? The forgetfulness is not the kind of forgetfulness that they forgot about who God is. This generation had tons of information, data, doctrine, theology about God. They knew the law, they studied it, they memorized it. They knew about the the great Exodus event. Their whole life and their whole history and their whole culture as a people was shaped by Israel coming out of Egypt. It was the gospel redemptive event in their whole life and everyone celebrated it. Everybody knew it. Everyone knew the stories. It certainly couldn't be that they forgot the conquest because their parents probably talked about it at the dinner table every night. Oh, remember the good old days when Joshua, and how about Caleb? Ooh, man. It's not that they forgot about God. The forgetfulness in this passage is that God was not real to them. God didn't grip them. Who God was didn't penetrate their life. Who God was and what he was about uh, didn't release power into them and exercise some sort of control over them, specifically this area. God's hesed did not shape their identity. You know what that means? His hesed didn't meet, reach, reshape, fill, and release peace and confidence and meet their deepest needs and their deepest longings. God's deliverances, whether it's the Exodus, the many in the wilderness. I mean, how many did we see in the wilderness when we went through there? There was tons of them. Do you remember? There's a, everywhere you turned, it was like, oh, they're in trouble again. Oh, they can't do it. Oh, God comes through. So they knew about the Exodus. They knew about the wilderness deliverances. They knew about the conquests. But God's deliverances didn't penetrate them. It didn't captivate them. These deliverances didn't deeply move into their life and generate gratitude and generate joy and release awe and wonder and worship and trust and faith in new life. Part two to evil, if you go back to verse seven, is easy to grasp if we get part one. When God's love and deliverance is not real to us, we'll try to find it in the Baals. They forgot the Lord their God, part one, and served the Baals and the Asherah, part two. When we don't 
when God's love and his chesed is not real to us. I'll try to find it over here. When God's deliverance doesn't deeply rearrange us and experientially thrill us and capture us and captivate us, I gotta find a deliverance somewhere. I'll find it over here. They forgot the Lord their God, part one, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, part two. There's the key to everything that goes on in the world. So how do we know if God isn't real to us? I mean, think about it. How do you know that God isn't real to you? Now, perhaps you are saying, well, I know God's not real to me because I'm not a Christian. You self-consciously know I'm not a Christian. I don't, I'm still wondering about God. I'm still wondering about the scriptures. If that's you, I mean, I get that. I get that. I understand that. All right, but what about those of us that, that are Christians? How do you know God's not real to you? I mean, is there some kind of test? Is there some kind of litmus test? I mean, how do you know that in a certain area like money or sex or relationships or your career that he's not real there? How do you know? And then how about this? How do you know when you, you want to be a good person and you want to do good things, how do you know that, that God might not be real in those areas? How? Here's the answer from Judges. Identify those areas that control you. And here's my little hint. Where do you feel out of control in your life? Wherever you feel out of control, that's where you're being controlled and you hate it. How many people here like to be controlled? I mean, you love having people control you. You love having your performance control you. You love having this destructive behavior control you. Yeah, nobody likes that. And Judges is saying, verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the land of Cushan Rishathim. I'm so thankful I've had two readers prepare the way for me for that. King of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. You know what's happening here? One judge's scholar really nails it. He says, If there were ever a historical picture of the truth that idolatry leads to slavery, this is it. In other words, there's a spiritual transaction that went on in the heart of Israel and God said, okay, let's make it official. Let's make visible what has happened in the invisible regions of your heart. I'm gonna give you what you want. I'm gonna let you go worship the Baals. And so the internal spiritual reality is confirmed in the physical realm when the nation of the gods that they've already given themselves to, the leader of those gods, the leader of that nation says, now I'm in control. I've noticed um, in my life recently that I have a new sleeping pattern. Now my routine, my sleeping routine is really, really simple. It's jumping into bed. The order of when this happens of kissing my wife can happen in various moments, but usually I jump into bed and I grab my iPad and I start reading. But I don't get very far. I get the first paragraph basically, and then about the second paragraph I'm so tired I start realizing I just reread that five times. And usually around the fifth, somewhere between the fifth and the tenth time I come to this realization that I just need to go to bed and so I'll kiss my wife somewhere around there and I shut the iPad and I pass out. Then, 
about 3 a.m. <laughs> and I still have, just as his confession's time, in the back of my head, in the back of my heart, is a traumatic event of watching the Amityville Horror as a kid. And do you remember when everybody woke up in that house? 3.20. So I look at 3 o'clock and I go, Whew, okay, scratch that one off the list. So why am I awake? You know, 3 o'clock, boom, I'm awake. Now I have a decision to make and it's so clear to me. It's like, Jeff, just roll over and go back to sleep. You know, I'm hearing lullabies. But I don't. I don't. My mind grabs money. Not because I have a lot of it. Just the opposite. It's stressing me out. And I start thinking about things like, why did our septic have to go out this month the same time our dang blasted oven did? And then how many times have I replaced that microwave already? And what did the dude at Home Depot tell me the last time I was in? This one will last 10 years. Ball! (laughs) It lasted one week after the warranty was done. That's what happens, right? And then I start thinking, my thoughts start moving and it starts rolling because it does roll. Then I start going to the cars because if you go to our house at night, it looks like a used car sales lot. And there's the, okay, there's the bald tires, there's the registrations, there's the insurance, there's the repairs, there's the inspections, there's the oil changes, there's the gas. Cha-ching. 15 minutes later, or is it more like 30 now? I move on to a different subject. And now I'm thinking about college tuition. And I start thinking about our food bill. And I start thinking about the cell phone bill. And who had the most minutes this month? And then I start thinking about the mortgage. And then I start thinking, who's leaving all the lights on in the house every night I come home? And that's when I start having these really enlightened thoughts, right, honey? Really enlightened. Like, who really needs a house anyway? Daniel Boone didn't have a house. (laughs) And I think, plumbing is so overrated. Look, we have the great outdoors, honey. And then in my really, when I'm really rolling, I start thinking, I get really, really like idealistic. They need to build a bike trail right beside I-35. Who needs cars? Nancy could pedal tie down 35 to get to Bell's volleyball game. It'd be good for her. And then when I'm really rolling, right? Ty just needs to get a job. He's a slacker. I'm controlled by money. Money means security to me. When I have it, it means God loves me. Money means I'm in control of my life to me. Money means I'm a good husband and I'm a good father. I have forgotten God. How do you know you've forgotten God? What wakes you up in the middle of the night? So what do we do? Good night. Is there a way out of being in control or being controlled? 
I mean, is there a way out of being controlled by Kushan Risha theme? Is there a way of being out of being controlled by the stress of money? But for some of you, I know, shame. How many of you have lived with shame from your earliest memories and perhaps because you were abused? It taints your day. You get up and you think, it's not going to be a good day today. How can it be a good day today? I'm worthless. You can't even, when you start enjoying yourself, you slap yourself back down because you, you surely can't enjoy something. That would mean you're okay, and you know you're not okay. How about being controlled by other people? How about needing to be a good person? Just driven, driven, driven. It's so traumatic for you to see any flaw, any failure, any sin. Very defensive, very critical. How? What's the way out when that kind of control has you by the jugular? Verse 7. The, the problem in verse 7 is also the solution. Isn't this beautiful? They forgot the Lord their God. So instead of forgetting him, what do they need to do? What do we need to do? Remember him. Remember him. Remember him. And that certainly means in verse 9, crying out to him, doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to remember him, the first thing is help. That's part of it. But you know what? There's something so much bigger and deeper going on in this passage. And it's found in verse 9. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel. He went out to war. Because that's what judges do. They win. And the Lord gave him Kushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishathim, so the land had rest for 40 years. <laughs> Kushan Rishathim is a chilling name. Do you know what it means? Literally, it means Kushan of double wickedness. Kushan, the doubly wicked. It's a play on words. It's not the name he gave himself. It's the name his victims gave him. The peoples that he abused and the peoples that he conquered in that whole world. He was an emperor, one of the firsts. Now moving into Canaan. And Israel is in the eighth year of his abusive control. How do you get out of that kind of control? It's clear in the text. There's only one way out. Israel had to be delivered. Israel had to be rescued. They couldn't deliver themselves. They couldn't break control of themselves. Verse 9, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel is not a politician. Othniel is a warrior, a deliverer, a conqueror. We first meet him in 113, do you remember? It's Caleb's nephew, so you know he's kind of got the same faith DNA. Who is Caleb? Remember, Caleb and Joshua were the only two in the previous generation that when the spies went out and they came back, they're the only ones that said, we can take it, and everybody else said, no, they're giants. 
No, we can take it. No, they're giants. So he's cut from that same kind of cloth. So you know what Caleb does? When Caleb goes in to do the 10% of the land, you know what he does? He, goes, he picks the biggest city in the 10% of the land that's yet to be overthrown. And he says, hey, anyone willing to take that city gets my daughter. Othniel said, that's your daughter? I'm going. <laughs> he trusted God to achieve what God said he would. Othniel is the only man mentioned at Judges beside Joshua to not have a list of flaws by his name. Pay attention when you read Judges. Every human being, every man, I should say. Deborah is going to be really fascinating. Every man in Judges has a list of flaws, except Othniel. Why? He's the ideal Israelite. When Caleb said, who's going to do it? He said, I would. The others didn't. We know that he marries within Israel because he takes Caleb's daughter. Other Israelite men didn't. They married outside of Israel. Other men are, and ladies and kids are involved in Canaanite corruption and Baal worship. He didn't. God's answer to controlling many gods in life is sending an ideal savior judge who delivers But did you notice there is one flaw in this guy? Did you catch it? One major flaw. He dies. This story doesn't end with peace. This story ends with death. Othniel's deliverance doesn't last. 40 years and then the lasts of peace get less and less as we move through judges. And so the text is automatically pushing you and me to see we need a deliverance that lasts. We need a deliverer who doesn't die in the end. The last book in Revelation, that deliverer steps forward and says, I am the living one. I was dead, and now I'm alive forever, forever, forever. We need a king who doesn't die. We need a king whose deliverance never ends. Forever it goes on. We need an ending like this. Go back to the end, the last verse. So the people... Notice it says the land. It doesn't say people had rest. So the people, we need an ending that goes like this. So the people had rest forever. Remember, remember the deliverer is the point of the passage. It's the point of the book of Judges. And wherever you find yourself forgetting, the answer isn't, more knowledge about things and more data and more information, you probably have enough already. Although it's always good to have more. <laughs> the answer is, remember your deliverance. Remember the deliverer. Because when you have uh, 
his deliverance and you start remembering, you start taking that deliverance to your Kushan Risha themes in your life. Those things that are controlling you, those things that wake you up in the middle of the night. And now you bring this deliverance and the deliverer to that. And you look at it and you say, you're defeated. You doubly wicked. You've been crushed. And not only does the, the deliverance of Jesus not only cancel our guilt and take it away forever, it also is our motivation to live the Christian life. How, you say, Jeff? How is that the motivation? Here's how. Because if his delivering love and his delivering grace and his delivering life touches you, you'll say no to the Kushim Risha themes in your life. Because when you forget his love, his hesed, his deliverance, you go to the bales. That's the order. So the answer is to remember. So how are you going to get out of control of those things? You've got to have a new motivation. A new motivation is Jesus actually gives me what I'm looking for. He's the only ideal savior. He's the only ideal deliverance. Kushim Rishathim? No. You can't love me. And you can't deliver me. In fact, you really, really hurt me. I'm done. Remember, 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 and live.